1: Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Awesome! Alan Dempsey does our engineering. Andrew Liska is our producer. And uh, longtime friend Rod Gregg is with us. Uh, he's the director of Crestcom Bank Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University. A prolific author on a wide range of topics, historian of note, but he has really shifted gears, and he's written a marvelously helpful book called The Word, and it's uh, a captivating history about the world's most popular book. You know what I'm talking about. Rod, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. How are you?
2: Hey, Pat. Thanks. Good to be with you.
1: And I'm glad you... uh, uh, have have weathered the, uh, the the bad weather up your way in North Carolina. I hope all is well.
2: It is. Thank you so much for asking.
1: Uh, tell me about the background of the book. What what was the mission here? What was the purpose?
2: Well, I think um, you know I'm a historian, of course, and before that, even I'm a Christian. So I've I have a deep respect and and love for the Bible. And as a historian, I always want to uh, to know and understand uh, the backstory. What's behind things, and so it was my hope for a long time to uh, to be able to write a history of the Bible. And I will say that um, um, the content, the story of how we got the Bible, really is extraordinary. And I think um, it's it's something that has a hopefully a great appeal to people because it's the one book that's found in ninety percent of American households
1: today. There are twelve. Chapters in your book. And uh, I'm just going to pretend here, uh, Rod, that we're sitting in your classroom and uh, you're teaching us. So let's start with the first topic Inspired by God. That's where you open your writing. So let's start there Inspired by God. T- uh, talk to us.
2: Well, uh, that's the position held by Christianity through the ages that the Bible is inspired by God in, in its original autographs and that it has been uh, textually faithfully transmitted through the ages to us so that um, when you open an English language or faithful translation of the Bible in any language, that uh, the Bible that we read today is faithfully transmitted through the ages um, for us and uh, carries the same um, message and power that it it did in in, uh, ages past.
1: Then you move to uh, a big topic. It's simply called the Old Testament. Uh, what are you writing there?
2: Well, this is a survey of the Old Testament, and it um, follows it really from the age of antiquity and and uh, how the, uh, the Old Testament um, developed, how it was uh, canonized, or the books that we have today were accepted uh, first by, uh, Jewish scribes and scholars, and that uh, amazing, wonderful, uh, extraordinary people that God created to be the the platform for Him to enter the world as Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah, and also as the people who would uh, preserve and protect His Word through the ages. And the book surveys that and explains uh, how that occurred and. Um, I think that uh, the remarkable thing is the preservation of the Word through the ages, and also just the intense um, scrutiny that every um, text was given uh, by the Jewish community of scholars, and how faithfully and carefully it was preserved, and all that is explained uh, in detail in that chapter.
1: And then you move to the New Testament. Tell us about that. That's chapter 3.
2: Right, and likewise, uh, this uh, chronicles the development of the New Testament books and how they um, came to be accepted and canonized or accepted as Scripture and how their um, the standards for canonization of the New Testament were influenced by the standards in the Old Testament, by uh, the uh, Jewish scribes and scholars, and uh, it, uh, it deals with uh, some of the... Um, some of the ancient and, and uh, most important uh, textual um, works that we have the uh, complete and and partial papyri and other uh, uh, works that we have of the Bible from antiquity and, and focusing on the New Testament. There's some extraordinary stories there about uh, New Testament documents and manuscripts and how they were discovered and uh, preserved uh, through the ages and And the importance of all of that to us and the people that are involved. I mean, there are some remarkable, fascinating stories of people who were involved in in, uh, the preservation and transmission of Scripture to us.
1: Rod Gregg is our guest. We're talking about his book, The Word. Now uh, we move to this topic, Rod heresy, persecution, and triumph.
2: Right. This traces the the uh the scriptures through the era of the early church and and you know it's just an amazing uh to look back and think that uh, the the uh, preservation of scripture is nothing short of amazing when you realize that uh over the ages there have been so many would be pallbearers and undertakers, and the Bible has continued to survive and uh this chapter deals with um the threats to the church and therein threats to the to uh, the preservation of the Bible from uh, uh, early cults such as the Gnostics to the waves of persecution uh, by the Roman Empire. When, when Christians uh, found with the Bible were uh, persecuted, executed, uh, Nero turned some of them into human torches to light his gardens. And these stories are told here in the preservation of, uh, of Scripture and how um, how it has come to us, and how it, uh, the New Testament came to be canonized. Uh,
1: I want you to explain light in the darkness. That's your next topic.
2: Right, and that that's a chapter that deals with uh, the uh, preservation of Scripture and how it came through uh, in the early ages of um, uh, the Christian era, and uh, the development there, and just a remarkable I think story there of uh, I think the misconception sometimes that there were church councils that picked and, uh, some books and discarded other books, and that somehow a group of men got together and had a council and decided, okay, this is the New Testament, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the, the books that we have in the New Testament today uh, emerged in the early church, and they faced the same rigid, rigorous, tough scrutiny that uh, the Jewish scholars because that was the precedent that Jewish scholars had set for Scripture. And uh, over time, through what historically Christianity has said is the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the certain books emerged as others were discarded and used in the early Church, so that as when these Church councils, the famous Church councils, began to, to meet, uh, with most of which were in the 4th century uh, A.D., the um, canon, the books that we accept as the New Testament, already was accepted by the Church, already existed, and what the councils did was recognize that.
1: Now, uh, Rod, Rod Gregg is our guest, talking about his new book, uh, God's Truth Abideth Still. Uh, explain that one.
2: Well, uh, this chapter uh, really surveys and uh, the development of uh, Events that affected the Bible and uh, that were affected by the Bible, I should say, and uh, particularly the kind of the perfect storm that came together at the time of the Reformation. The Reformation, of course, was uh, a revival of Bible-based Christianity that spread across Europe and changed uh, everything, changed nations, changed lives. And um, it, this deals with the um, the impact of the movable type press. Gutenberg's Press and how that uh, uh, had developed and uh, arisen so that books could be mass produced and cheaper so that the everyday person could use them. Also, at a time when the Reformation brought back this great uh, emphasis on Scripture as the foundation of faith, and uh, the two together were like a perfect storm. And I would also say that uh, the book also deals with other technology and things perhaps people don't think of as technology, such as. Uh, the greek language of antiquity and the roman roads you know alexander the great conquered um much of the civilized world the mediterranean basin and then as far away as uh, scholars believe as india in um in the fourth century bc in the in and uh, brought with him the greek language which for the first time united uh, so much of the world in a common language
1: right greg Is our guest, more with Rod, talking about his book, The Word, right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Author Rod Gregg is with us. His new book is out. It's called The Word. And, Rod, we now have arrived... At this interesting topic, Let There Be Light, you write. Uh, explain.
2: Well, this work uh, surveys the development, early development of um, English language translation of the Bible, and it really is the story in many ways of William Tyndall. Now, he was uh, preceded um, a century or so earlier um, by uh, John Wycliffe, who, uh, who translated the Bible into English, Old Middle English, it's called. Uh, we would have difficulty reading it perhaps today. But it was English, and uh, he did that. But uh, this was before the uh, Gutenberg press really could uh, print books and get them out. Everything was done by hand. It was laborious, couldn't do many. They were very expensive. But people, it was said, would rent them for the for a, a, a cartload of hay. Uh, it was that considered that precious. And of course, after Wycliffe died, church officials had his body dug up, uh, disinterred, burned, and his ashes thrown in a river trying to suppress this, but it, it didn't take. And uh, William Tyndall came along and published the, the, um, the English translation of the Bible. It was mass-produced in England. It cost him his life, uh, but his last words as he was uh, uh, garroted or strangled at the stake was, the Lord opened the king of England's eyes.
1: Mm. And that happened. I want you to explain uh, the next topic to us the Holy Bible in their mother tongue. Uh, what does that mean, Rod?
2: Well, this surveys uh, the Bibles that followed William Tyndall's And Tyndall's, Tyndall's Bible um, was so influential. And uh, he did the New Testament. He was working on the Old Testament when he was uh, executed. But others picked up his work. And that story is is told here uh, in uh, in detail. And, and the Bibles that followed until... Uh, uh, the monarchy in England uh, accepted and uh, basically um, uh, decided that the, the Bible had to be endorsed by the monarchy, and it was, and this, and this deals with a series of, of Bibles that were produced after Tyndall's and the influence they had and the in- influence that Tyndall's Bible had on all of these, um, you know, ranging from uh, the Coverdale Bible, uh, the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible, uh, the Geneva Bible, and others that are there, and each one with its own remarkable, fascinating story.
1: The next topic for us, endeared to the hearts of millions.
2: Yes, this this uh, spends a lot of time focusing on what is the most popular English-language Bible in all history, and that's King James Bible. And it really... Um, it really could have been called um, the Puritan Bible. It was the Puritans' idea. The Puritans were a, a body of people that arose at Cambridge University among the faculty and staff, and they wanted to reform the Church of England, the Anglican Church, in certain areas. And James I had just taken the crown, succeeding Queen Elizabeth I, and they thought he would be their friend, but he was not. They had a conference with him, they put forth their reforms. He did not receive them well. He was quite uh, critical and eventually hostile to that sort of thing. But the one thing the two groups agreed on, the king and the Puritans, was the need for an English-language translation of the Bible, a new one. And uh, out of that emerged uh, what became officially known as the Authorized Version, um, but popularly known as the King James Version, because he was the king, the monarch, who officially authorized it. But as I say, It was really the idea of the Puritans, and it could have been called the Puritan Bible, and that whole story is uh, told in in fascinating detail uh, there in that chapter. Uh,
1: I want you now to move to the topic, Rod, called The Bible Comes to America. Uh, This has got to be interesting. Well,
2: it is, because um, our our, our culture, laws, and government were really uh, dramatically impacted uh, by the Bible, and uh, a series of chapters here survey that, the impact of the Bible, the first Bible that was published in America, which was actually published uh, in a Native American tongue uh, for the Wampanoag-Algonquin-speaking people, and it was um, published by um, John Elliott and a team of Indian translators who did this, but uh, we also deal with the impact of the, the Bible that came to the, through the Puritans, the Geneva Bible. James Bible used by the Puritans, and then through the colonial era, just the impact of the Bible up to the founding of the nation. Because there's, you know, there's, it's not an accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, says in its preamble that, that uh, all men are uh, created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable or God-given rights. Life, Liberty, Pursuit of Happiness, all of that is Bible-based, and so these chapters survey the impact of the Bible on the formation of America, which was remarkably unique in history.
1: Right. we move to the next topic, and it's called A New Nation Embraces an Old Book. Well, what's going on here? Well, that
2: uh, deals with translations, English-language translations that were uh, published in America, including one called the became known as the Congressional Bible. During the American Revolution, a series of, a group of ministers came to the Continental Congress uh, and expressed concern for a lack of Bibles because the supply had been interrupted by the war. Most of them came from England or Scotland, and so Congress, Continental uh, Congress, voted to. Uh, to authorize the Bible, and authorize it the way the King James Bible had been authorized by King James, and it would become known as the Congressional Bible. Uh, unfortunately, the British Army invaded Philadelphia, captured it, and uh, the Congress had to flee uh, before they could uh, fund it, even though they had approved it. And uh, when all that was over, there really wasn't any funding, but... Uh, After the war, uh, one of the publishers they had contacted named Robert Atkin produced the Bible, took it to Congress, and Congress endorsed it officially. And so it became known in the day as the Congressional Bible. And so this chapter uh, deals with that and and other related
1: stories. And then uh, we move to the twelfth topic. The Word of Our God Stands Forever...
2: Right, and this uh, this chapter surveys um, the development of the English Bible and, and all of the uh, key translations uh, throughout the last century or so, um, up until our, our modern time, and also the impact of the Bible in modern day and how it's viewed by Americans today. And, um, you know, the, it kind of answers the question, is the Bible important? Uh, to Americans today, and uh, of course, based on ownership, it's uh, still the most popular book in America. Some kind of Bible found in 90% of the nation's uh, households, according to, to a variety of polling uh, organizations, and then it, it surveys um, um, the impact of uh, the shift in the American worldview, which is one of the great, uh, I guess, the great underreported story of our day, that a shift, at least in America's leadership, from a historic traditional Judeo-Christian worldview, which says that God is the authority over all things, that God is, should be the center of all focus, to something entirely different—a um, humanistic worldview that says man is the authority over all things and man should be
1: the center of all focus—and
2: the impact that has had and is having on uh, on
1: America. Rod Gregg is our guest. His book is called The Word. It's a it's an intense look at the history of the Bible. Rod, you write about the immense popularity of the King James Bible. We've talked about that. However, it's my understanding uh, that King James was not very friendly to those who proposed what became the King James Version. Can you expand on that?
2: Well, right. Um, as I was saying uh, early, very briefly, that uh, James I, James Stewart, came to the throne after Elizabeth I and uh, succeeded her, even though she had executed his mother, Mary Queen of Scots. And he um, considered himself to be a Bible scholar. He had actually done some research work on the Bible and some commentaries. And, uh, and the Puritans who wanted to reform the Church of England in different ways really thought maybe they now had a friend on the throne. But it turned out that uh, he was a, a he was very serious believer in the divine right of kings. That um, whatever a king thought or wanted came from God and had to be followed. And he did not like the idea that someone wanted to reform the Church of England. He felt like if you didn't go along with his bishops, then you were a threat. Mm. And uh, so the, this uh, this occurred, and this tension was there uh, between the Puritans and, uh, and James the first, and eventually. Um, Uh, They, and and particularly the separatist movement that the pilgrims, we know, came out of, ended up under a real serious persecution under uh, the rule of James I. But the uh, remarkable, most lasting impact in so many ways for us, is, despite all of that and partly because of it, the King James Bible emerged. And what we know is the King James Bible, which, of course, was the most um, enduring and endearing Bible, Uh, They did not have uh, access to the best manuscripts that we have today, but uh, a modern King James Bible, of course, does. uh, But that Bible had a a great uh, impact in so many ways.
1: Rod, what is your advice on the best way to read the Bible and to study it and learn it? Well,
2: you know, uh, I think the, the tradition in Orthodox Christianity uh, is one that I certainly uh, that I followed and has meant so much to me, and I think that what Christianity has said is is um, read the Bible. You don't have to have all the answers, but go to it. Uh, read it. Start say with the Gospel of John, and uh, that's a great starting point. Read it prayerfully. Read it with a willing heart and an open mind. And the Bible promises that the the Holy Spirit will illuminate the Bible and that it will uh, touch hearts and change lives, and I think I got to tell you, you know, that after doing all of this, I think that the the most remarkable thing to me after spending all this time on uh, the history of the Bible is that uh, here you have this uh, work that was produced over the course of uh, fifteen hundred years in three different languages from antiquity: Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, by uh, some 40 different human writers, diverse. And yet, over all that time, with those different languages, with all those writers, there is a unified theme that can be summarized in a single verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will live forever.
1: Tell me more about Jesus and his words in the New Testament.
2: Well, um, that you know, the Bible is God's uh, love story, and what it basically says is that God created us, he loved us from the beginning, he gave us the ability to reject him, and uh, we are masters at doing that. And he had a plan of salvation and you know, it's, uh, it's almost like it's summed up in, uh, in the image of a of a great chasm and a cliff on two sides, and we're on one side and God's on the other. God is holy, and we can't reach Him on our own, because He will not be around uh, what is not holy and what is not. And uh, so there's our great dilemma, how do we reach God? And religions are God's way of reaching, uh, man's way of reaching out to God, but Jesus Christ is God's way of reaching out to man. And what the Bible teaches is that God, at a point in time that he planned, in the fullness of time, it says in Galatians, that that God wrapped himself in flesh and entered this world as Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that he, um, he was born of a miraculous birth. He lived a miraculous life. He set a perfect example. He died an atoning death for us on a cross, To uh, remove our sins of those who receive him, he was um, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended, and he's coming again for all those who receive him, and that is God's love message. And that chasm, that great gulf that separates us from God is called sin, and that cross of Christ, that bloody, rugged cross, connects the bridge across that chasm. And God reaches out to us through Jesus Christ with an open hand and says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and peace. And the, again, that simple truth of Scripture is summarized in that single verse, John
1: 3.16. Rod, it's been wonderful to chat with you. I uh, have always read your books with great interest. Civil War, Revolutionary War period, fascinating, but uh, uh, this may be your Grand Slam.
2: <laughs> well, we will, we will give God the credit for that, should it be the case, but I will tell you that this book was uh, really, really challenging in so many ways, and it was sobering to see those people who would live their lives and lay down their lives for the preservation of the Word, and it was also inspiring at the same time.
1: We've got more after this. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, it's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Rod Gregg, our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, The Word. Uh, Heath Adamson joins us from Springfield, Missouri, author of Grace in the Valley. How are you,
3: Heath? Hey, good morning, Pat. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm doing fantastic.
1: So nice of you to join me, and I'm uh, happy to uh, talk to you about Grace in the Valley. Interesting title, Awaken to God's Presence When He Feels Far Away. Uh, what does that subtitle mean?
3: Uh, you know, um, when we study Scripture, it's it's apparent that God is everywhere, God knows everything, and God can do anything. And yet at the same time, sometimes we experience situations that do not line up with what we know to be true about God, and because of that, sometimes He feels far away. And um, I travel a lot, I speak frequently, and uh, the primary question I get is this, if God is so close and so powerful and knows everything, then why am I experiencing some of the situations I'm experiencing? So, um, yep, that's what the subtitle means, Pat.
1: I want you to uh, explain the introduction of your book, but I still love you. Uh, What's that mean?
3: Yeah, there a few years ago, I came across a story, um, I don't share the name, but um, of a young girl who at a very young age, uh, she experienced something in elementary school. Uh, she was going through a very difficult time as a child. She was being abused. Her, her life was laden with dysfunction. And what happened is, is she was in uh, a public school classroom, and um, the teacher just became frustrated because the girl wouldn't pay attention. She didn't have manners. She wouldn't sit still. And finally, the teacher asked the young girl to stand up in front of the entire class and and issued this edict and instructed the class one by one for each student to walk up to the chalkboard and write down everything they disliked about the the student. And so one by one, little kids, and as you know, sometimes little children can be a bit bit cruel, they walked up and began to write things on the chalkboard like, I hate you, I wish you had never been born, nobody Mm. wants to play with you at recess, And so you can just imagine this young girl, somebody's little princess, standing in a classroom, crying, uh, completely traumatized. Uh, Well, unfortunately, those words on the chalkboard, in many ways, became formative, and I would even suggest prophetic. Fast forward years later, after a few failed marriages, after her children were taken away by the state, after a few failed suicide attempts, the drug addict, uh, her parents were uh, completely at, at their wit's end. They didn't know what to do. So in one last-ditch attempt to save their daughter, they took her to yet another counselor. As she was sitting in the counselor's office, the counselor uh, walked her through a process known as reflection, where you look back over your life to try to figure out how in the world you arrived where you are. And he took her back to that moment when, in her early years as an elementary student, she found herself remembering standing there in the classroom, mm. one by one, all of the things the students wrote about her. Uh, the pain became unbearable. She jumped up out of the office, uh, I'm sorry, out of the chair uh, in the counselor's office, began to run out, and the counselor lifted up his voice. He said, You know what? I'm not finished with you. Come back here and sit down. And, you know, the young woman at that time in her early 20s thought, why is he so passionate about this? After all, don't we pay him to care about me? But for some reason, rather than leaving the office, she came back, sat down in the chair, and he looked at her, he leaned across his desk, and he said this. He said, you forgot the most important part of that day. You remember that young boy who walked up to the chalkboard and wrote these words, but I still love you? He said, I was that boy. I Mm. remember you, and I've tried to reach you for years. Mm. Uh, the, The purpose of the introduction is this. We all experience situations that do not line up With what God has uh, intended us to become. Sometimes it's because of the decisions we make. Sometimes it is because of the decisions other people make. Sometimes it's just because of the way life works, and yet at other times God does invite us into a unique situation. Regardless of the reason, here's the point. The point is we can become distracted by all of the other things and forget that deep down inside God has inscribed on our heart that regardless of what we think. And feel uh, God still loves us as well, and so the purpose of the introduction and even the book, Pat, is to really help the reader understand that sometimes um, uh, what we think is an all-out assault on our soul, where we feel like we are surrounded by enemies. Enemies such as depression, abuse, poverty, uh, whatever it may be, uh, really, in essence, if, if we'll look closely, we'll also discover that God, according to the 23rd Psalm, has actually prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And, um, and if I could give a gift to the reader, it would be this, that everybody would know that they are deeply loved by God. And regardless of their situation, nothing will ever change that.
1: Let's dive into the meat of the book, Keith. Uh, the first topic, learning to see. Uh, tell us about that and how you open the book.
3: Yeah, I open up the book. Uh, there's a story in the New Testament uh, in Matthew chapter 20 of a blind beggar who was sitting by the road begging, and um, Scripture is clear that the, the blind beggars heard that Jesus was about to pass by. And but something in them, they had absolutely no proof, but they decided to cry out anyway, and and the Bible tells us this that Jesus stopped and he, and he looked at the blind men and he asked, "What do you want me to do for you?" The blind men said, "We want to receive our sight." What I'm about to say is difficult to see in the English Bible, but in the Greek New Testament it's prevalent. Uh, Jesus stopped and he looked at them. What do you want me to do? They said, we want to see. And the Greek word that, they, that is used in the Gospel of Matthew for see or sight is a word that means biological eyes. But the Bible tells us that Jesus touched their eyes and immediately their sight was restored. And in the Greek New Testament, a different word is used for eyes. Jesus touched their omata. They asked Jesus to touch their ophthalmai. What's the difference? Uh, Ophthalmi, ophthalmologist, that's biological eyes. But Jesus touched their omata. It is a Greek word Plato used in writing to describe the eyes of the soul. And the point is this, that Jesus opened up their spiritual eyes just as much as he opened up their physical eyes. And what we don't see is more real than anything we do see. And... Oftentimes, we find ourselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and if we'll look closely, we'll discover that we're actually standing in the green pasture. I would suggest that the valley of the shadow of death and the green pasture, uh, according to Psalm 23, are actually the same place. Uh,
1: I want you to move to the next topic. Does God recognize you? Question mark.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, identity is significant. Um there is a place that we can come to in God where if we look close enough in His eyes, we will see a true reflection of who we really are and a true reflection of who He is. Um, one of the things that unfortunately took place when death, spiritual death, sin entered the world, is the identity of Adam and Eve was completely changed. And in Psalm 23, we see that David gives a unique name to God. He describes God as his shepherd. Now, remember, David was handpicked by God to be king. Uh, According to Jewish tradition, David, when he sings Psalm 23, is starving to death. He is running for his life. People want to murder him, and he finds himself in the forest of Hereth, where he is starving. His life is threatened. He is Severely misunderstood, he's been handpicked by God to rule and reign as king, and yet he is a pauper, he is homeless, and he's sitting in quiet desperation. And when he cries out to God, he does not say, The Lord, you are my great deliverer. He does not say, The Lord, my mighty warrior. He does not say, The Lord, you are the great avenger of my enemies. Instead, he says, The Lord is my shepherd. And David, the young shepherd boy, handpicked by God to become king, refers to God as a shepherd. What's interesting, Pat, at this time in history, uh, to have the vocation of being a shepherd was an insult, it was degrading. The shepherds were not even considered capable of telling the truth their testimony was not even allowed in a criminal trial that that is how decrepit a shepherd was considered to be and yet we find no indication in psalm 23 that God is in any way offended or insulted to be known as a shepherd Jesus is our good shepherd and we all like sheep have gone astray and David discovers something unique about God's identity and his identity but he doesn't discover that just in the green pasture he discovers it in the valley the valley of the shadow of death but it's only a shadow.
1: Heath, uh, I want you to move to the third topic, what we see in the valley. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, in the valley, uh, you know, what's interesting is the Bible tells us in Psalm 23 that he makes us lie down in green pastures, and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, We can invert that, and oftentimes we can walk through green pastures, and we can choose to lie down in the valley. Uh, What we do know is that God prepares a table for us, not in the green pasture, but in the valley of the shadow of death. And oftentimes what we think is a spiritual attack I would suggest is actually an invitation by God uh, to feast with him. There's a realm of intimacy with God that exists in the valley of the shadow of death.
1: And now it's time to get to the topic, God's favorite place to be.
3: Yeah, my wife Allie is the one actually who shared this phrase with me. She mm-hmm. just to, over coffee. One of my favorite things to do is to talk with Allie. Uh, I love uh, just discussing scripture and talking about what we're learning about Jesus together. And uh, one time she made the statement to me. She said, "Heath, you have to remember we are God's favorite place to be." A shepherd, especially at the around 10th century BCE Israel at the time David would have recited this. Um, A shepherd would take their rod and their staff and walk into a dry, barren, rocky place. And what's important to understand, Pat, is green pastures typically don't exist at this part of the world. Green pastures only exist when a shepherd would go through the painstaking effort of removing the rocks, removing the thorns and thistles irrigating the land, leveling the land, and, and uh, planting seeds so that there could be vegetation. When the Bible talks about God making us lie down in green pastures, it's a reference to a practice that Jewish shepherds at that time would employ. A Jewish shepherd was often known To after he went through, because again, uh, shepherds were typically men, after a shepherd would go through the work of digging up the ground, removing the rocks, and making a place, a safe place for the sheep to feed as well as lie down. Shepherds were known at nighttime to lie down with their sheep. And you get this picture of a, sh- a shepherd who goes through in the midst of the uh, the summer heat in the Sinai Peninsula, the sweat of his brow dripping off of his face, and here is a shepherd. And, and the shepherd knows that at some point all of this work will be over, and I will be able to lie down uh, with a possession of mine that I deeply love and appreciate, my sheep so when it says he makes us lie down in green pastures in essence what david is saying is you know what i am so i believe we can be so close to god the father that god in many ways even during our night season, will lie down with us, that we are never alone, we are never isolated, that God loves us enough to take us to a place, and even if the place is barren, dry, and there is no life, God himself will invest the time to cultivate the ground so that there can be a special place just for us to be with him and rest.
1: Uh, My guest is Heath Adamson. He's in Missouri. The book is called Grace in the Valley, and uh, we're taking a look at it, and we've arrived, Heath, beside Still Waters.
3: Yes. Um, you know, Psalm 23, it is a piece of religious literature that regardless of someone's religious and faith orientation, the words of Psalm 23 often echo uh, in in quite a few hearts. I've been in the Middle East, in Europe, uh, in Asia, obviously here in North America, South America, where I've met people who don't know the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They've uh, never even uh, maybe uh, made a commitment to walk out uh, their life as a Christ follower, and yet many of them knew the words of Psalm 23. It's a poetic passage, it is beautiful literature, but there's something about the language that seems to capture the heart of people who may not even confess Christ as, as their Savior yet. When you come to the line in the psalm that says this, "...he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters." Uh, It reminds me of the time in the New Testament when Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, instructed his disciples to get into the boat on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And what happens in the text? It tells us that a storm breaks. And the storm was so violent, everyone in the boat was convinced they were about to die. Uh, The storm actually blew them off course well over 10 miles. And when you read in Mark 4, it tells us that uh, the friends of Jesus were so afraid they wake Jesus up, and Jesus is uh, ironically sleeping in the bottom of a boat in the midst of a significant storm. I serve as chief of staff at Convoy of Hope. Uh, right now, our team is deployed on the East Coast because of some storms that crashed into our shore. I'm thankful for the uh, for our team who is serving those who are in need. And what I've personally experienced is this: that when a violent storm comes, a lot of damage takes place. There's a lot of fear. Uh, it makes all the sense in the world that the friends of Jesus were terrified.
1: My guest is Heath Adamson. We're talking about his book, Grace in the Valley. I'm Pat Williams. It's a Saturday power hour. And you're listening, excuse me, to 94.9 FM and AM 950, the word in Orlando. Heath Adamson is with us from Springfield, Missouri. His book is called Grace in the Valley. And Heath, we've arrived at Running in the Night.
3: Yes, Uh, Pat, a few years ago I came across a story to someone who in the middle of the night was awoke and they felt like they were compelled to start running. And so in a remote village in India, this individual named Sadhu began to run and literally felt in his heart that he was receiving instructions by God. At this point, go left. At this point, go right. He found himself standing underneath a tree in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, something fell on top of his head. And he looked up, and there was someone in the tree who was about to commit suicide and hang themselves. Uh, the point is this, is in the middle of the night, someone dared to listen to the whisper of God, and because of that, someone's life was changed. Um, sadhu was able to prevent a tragedy, a suicide from occurring, simply because he listened to the whisper of God. Um, oftentimes, the voice of God comes to us uh, disguised in obscure, unique ways. We love it when the voice of God comes to us when we are in a green pasture, but when we experience a situation that does not line up with God's goodness, oftentimes we tend to think that God is far away but it's then in those moments when God draws close to us um, the presence of a shadow in the middle of the night season, is an indication that there is a light much greater just off in the distance. So when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, it's important to understand that the only reason there is a shadow there is because a light exists beyond. It's important to remember the Hebrew Sabbath begins not at sunrise, but at sunset, when darkness begins to creep upon the earth. That is when we remember God, and it is then, in those moments, when we can learn to identify His voice more clearly.
1: Tell us about pieces and lids and what that means.
3: Yeah, when I was a kid, I loved going to my grandma's house. And uh, I loved going as a preschooler. It's the only place as a preschool kid where I could drink black coffee, drink Coca-Cola, and eat oatmeal cookies on Saturday morning for breakfast. And one of my favorite things to do with grandma was to put together puzzles. She put together the huge crossword puzzles with 6,822 pieces. Well, I remember as a kid thinking this, Pat, what would happen if I switched grandma's puzzle lids. Uh, What she used to do is take the puzzle lid off, prop the lid up against the wall and take all of the pieces and assemble the puzzle based on the picture that was on the lid of the puzzle. But when I switched the lids to her puzzle box, I watched how she in frustration was trying to put together a picture that the creator of the puzzle never intended her to put together. And sometimes in life, our lid can get switched. We can have all of the right pieces, pieces like prayer, and, and Bible reading, and generosity, compassion, community, friendships, relationships, family. Uh, we can have all of the right pieces in life, but if our lid gets switched, we invest all of our time and energy putting together an image of something that was never intended to be put together to begin with. Sometimes when we feel like we are standing in the valley of the shadow of death, our lid gets switched because actually, if we look closely, we'll discover we're standing in the green pasture.
1: By the way. Uh, how did your grandmother react uh, to your tricky <laughs> little act there?
3: Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Pat. It's the first time I ever heard my grandma cuss at me, and it's also the first time she ever spanked me. And I'm telling you what, that 85-pound grandma could, could hit me pretty hard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next topic. Whose shadow is it, anyway? Question mark.
3: Yeah, um, you know, oftentimes when we find ourselves in a situation, that does not line up with the goodness of God. And, you know, candidly, Pat, um, I didn't grow up in church. Um, I met Jesus when I was 17. I came from a background where I was steeped in the occult and drug abuse at a very dark past. And about 24 hours after meeting Jesus at the age of 17, I had a fairly miraculous um, life change. After that happened, I quickly realized that Just because you love God and just because God loves you does not mean that life is easy. Jesus made it clear in this life you will have trouble. But I also discovered that in the Greek New Testament, one of the words for miracle is mysterion. That's where we get our word mystery. And oftentimes when you think of a miracle, you think of someone who has cancer and they receive a clean bill of health from the doctor, or maybe a marriage falling apart and the husband and wife uh, make their peace and fall in love again. Uh, When you think of a miracle, it's also important to remember that oftentimes a miracle is shrouded in mystery, where God invites us into situations where it is very difficult to see, it is very difficult to find God, and it's very difficult to understand. It's in that moment where we find ourselves in the valley surrounded by shadows, where we feel like we're steeped in mystery. But Matthew 13 is clear. Jesus spoke in mysteries to reveal the heart. And when we find ourselves in a situation that we do not fully understand, it is important to understand that it may be mysterious, but that does not mean it cannot be miraculous. Because in the valley of the shadow of death, there is a shadow much greater than any other shadow we can ever face in life, and that is the shadow of God. And the psalmist is clear he who dwells in the secret place will abide under the shadow of the Almighty.
1: Now, I want you to get to the topic, comforted by engraved stories. Uh, What does that mean, Heath?
3: In Psalm 23, David says, your rod and your staff— they comfort me. Now, shepherds had a tradition. At the time that David would have been a young shepherd boy, shepherds carved stories and testimonies into their rod and staff. Sometimes the rod and staff was one instrument. At other times, the rod and staff were two distinct instruments. And a shepherd would carve into his staff special moments uh, in life. Uh, For example, when David killed the lion and the bear, we read about that in Scripture. That would have been something he carved in his staff. Uh, shepherds oftentimes sat around the campfire where they would take the rod in their staff and they would share the miracles of God with one another. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Pat, it's important that we don't believe everything we think and we cannot believe everything we feel. What do I mean? Uh, the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all. And the greatest misunderstandings are not intellectual. The greatest misunderstandings are spiritual. Uh, what The Bible tells us, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And one of the most uh, important things we can do when we're going through a dark night of the soul is to not just lean into our feelings and our thoughts, but to really go back to God's rod and staff, which is Scripture, the, the Bible, to take the rod and staff of God in our hand and to allow the stories of God that have taken place in the past to become our stories today. It's interesting that Moses, of all things, took his staff and stretched it out in front of him, and then God parted the water. Um, Remembering what God has done can encourage us and inspire us, and in many ways, um, take our faith to another level to believe if God did it before, God can do it again.
1: Uh, Now I want you to talk about the table your enemy can't feast at.
3: Yes. Um, You know, my wife, Allie, when when our girls were younger, we have two daughters uh, when they were younger. Birthday parties were a big deal. And, uh, you know, somebody, Pat, came up with a great idea. Let's convince moms around the world that balloons, silverware, napkins, plates, and, you know, Place mats, everything needs to be cute and match. And so now we have these huge party superstores. Well, we used to go into those party superstores and get the pink plates and napkins and balloons and streamers and everything had to be cute and special. Um, I have a lot of fond memories. But I remember when we threw birthday parties for our kids, Uh, The most important detail is when we created the invitation list. We sat down and we made sure we invited friends and family members who would provide a great memory and experience for our girls. I don't remember a time where I ever said to my wife, hey, let's invite a creepy neighbor, or "Is is there a weirdo, is there a serial killer on the loose in the neighborhood? Let's invite him or her. I never did that. Why? Because those we invited to the party would guarantee that our kids had an amazing experience when we were throwing the party for them. When God throws a party, and if anybody knows how to throw a party, I'm convinced God does, but when He throws a feast and a party for you and for me, who does He invite? Well, Psalm 23 says, He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And just imagine the look on our enemy's face when He comes around the corner in the valley, and there He is. There's God standing there with a table, a table that He has prepared just for you and for me. All of our favorite things are at that table, and there are only two chairs pulled up to that table, one for God and the other for us. I think it's amazing that God is so powerful and so breathtaking that he invites our enemy to stand there in the valley, and when the enemy thought he was going to discourage us and defeat us, actually God invited him just so the enemy could watch us sit down with God and feast. There's not a place for the enemy at the table of God. There's just a place for us and God to enjoy one another.
1: Heath Adamson has been our guest. We've got a wrap-up after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Rod Gregg was with us in the first segment, uh, talking about his new book, A History of the Bible simply called The Word. And then Heath Adamson joined us and uh, taught us about uh, the 23rd Psalm based on his new book, Grace in the Valley. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, check out my latest book. It's called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. Uh, We take a look at uh, Coach Wooden and his summer camps and what we can learn about... Coaching and uh, getting along with people and being successful. Uh, you Go up to Amazon. Good way to order books. We'll be back next weekend for more right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Have a great week ahead